Okay. <laughs> okay, so welcome. As you know, at home there's, uh, there is only audio, and those here in the live audience, um, there's both. So uh, we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to skip the song, skip the silence. We're going to go right into the verse by verse. Lord, we uh, love you and we seek you. Gather together as like-minded believers um, in different places of our walk, trying to understand what uh, the text means to us today, uh, and specifically to this topic of tongues that Paul spends an entire chapter talking on uh, for us. And so we pray that your spirit will be with us to lead us and move us and help us to incorporate the things that are purposeful and needful in our lives and the things that are not to discard. And uh, we pray for this now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we left off with Paul saying in reference to speaking in tongues last week, for if a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? If the trumpet blows a C note and the battle is an A note, uh, you know, it doesn't work, right? Or some inaudible thing. So likewise, he says, verse 9, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. You're going to be just talking and no one will know what you're talking about. So let's continue on at verse 10 through uh, 20. He says, there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he occupieth the room of the unlearned? Say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understands not what thou sayest. That, that line right there is one reason why people don't read the King James. It, I mean, it's just really tif difficult, even for me who loves reading the King James, to really grasp what at the first glance. Verse 17, for thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, how, how be it in malice be you children, but in understanding be men. So let's go back to verse 10. After he says, listen, even the trumpets have to have articulation so we know what they're saying to us to go to war. We're talking about how those instruments were used at the time of warfare. He says, there are, it may be, 
so many kinds of voices in the world and none of them is without signification. That double negative, none of them is without, means that they all have an articulation. They all have an ability to say something, right? So building off what we covered last week with regard to musical instruments, Paul now expands to the world of all voices, anything that speaks, he says, and points out that all of them, if they have value, have a articulation and through specific sounds to convey the specific voice. Everything has a sound that conveys a specific voice. Alarms, we just heard one. Sirens, musical instruments, soundtracks, you name it, right? If properly presented and understood, it tells us something. Even things that are not really articulated have a voice. That, when you hear that, I heard clapping, you know that generally means one thing, unless it's done sarcastically, right? They speak, <laughs> says something. My daughters hate when I do that, by the way. And that conveys something, even though it's not really articulated to our minds, it speaks to us. Everything says something. So if this is the case in the general rule for the world and how everything works around us, it certainly should be the case with tongue speaking. And so this is a direct indictment against those churches that gather together and they're full of babblings that no one knows what the heck is being said. It is fruitless. He's going to come down later and just really indict that practice in the church. But right now, just based off this alone, if someone is babbling and we don't know what it means, it is bad clapping. It's bad horn playing. Okay? So he says at verse 11, therefore, well, there's a therefore, there's a wherefore. If I know not the meaning of a voice, I shall be unto him that speaks a barbarian, and he that speaks shall be a barbarian to me. Now, that word barbarian is interesting if you look at the etymology of the word in Greek because it's an onomatopoeia. It comes from barbar, and that's how, well, that's how the Greeks would, would say everyone else who doesn't speak Greek sounds to them. Bar, 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 bar. It's like our word babbling. Babble. It's an onomatopoeia. So the word barbarism doesn't necessarily mean a warrior that is out there barbaric. The word actually originates from babbling. And so uh, in opposition to the polished Greek speakers of the day, the rest of the uncivilized world, as the Greeks would see other groups, the Greeks said that anyone who didn't articulate their language was a babbler or a barbarian and um, noise talker. But so in the sense, uh, barbarous is not necessarily animal-like, even though barbarian to us means more that now it originated with language. At verse 12, he says, even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, you guys at Corinth, you want spiritual gifts, Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the ecclesia, 
the church, the gathering, the called out. Seek that your spiritual gifts, your desire to have them, does something to actually improve the life of people around you. And is not just a performance or a show like babbling in a tongue that no one understands. So he then says, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. What that tells us here, we have a pass given to a rule he's going to establish later. And the pass is, if somebody is going to speak in an unknown tongue, parenthetical reference, and there's not an interpreter present to make what that person says clear, let the one speaking pray that they can interpret what they're saying. So there's another rule he throws at us. If someone stands up in the middle of campus today and starts uh, giving us a language of an unknown tongue, and remember, contextually in the Bible, that usually means a real language, French or something, and, and that person doesn't speak it and they start speaking it. If there's no one to interpret it, then let that person who's doing it be able to understand what they're saying so they can edify the church. If we're living in an age of tremendous spiritual gifts like they were, and they were in an age of tremendous spiritual gifts, the apostolic age, then this is what he's laying down for them at Corinth. So at this point, he mentions another form of expressing an unknown tongue besides speaking. He gives us two things, praying in an unknown tongue and singing in an unknown tongue. Uh, it opens us up to quite an interesting discussion. So speaking of himself now, he, Paul brings himself into the discussion and he says at verse 14, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, so some suggest that what Paul is doing is he's just providing He's just proving his point by whatever the communication is from a human being um, in front of a group or even privately, it must be done in the context of understanding. Okay? And so now he talks, he tosses into this argument praying and then singing somehow in an unknown tongue. Is there such a thing as praying in tongues? Uh, how about singing in an unknown tongue? Now, before you just shut your mind off to that, I just want to introduce to you a couple concepts. Have you ever been so upset with a situation uh, that you, your mind, you're not articulating words, but you are you are so overwrought that you have moved past the need to say things in language, but your heart is so full. You're making sounds. You know what those sounds are saying. Oh, I cannot believe, you know, my dog was hit by this car. It's so important to our family. I'm just so upset. And you're just letting that out. That is an indication of a prayer in an unknown tongue. Have you ever been singing to God, 
something that is really, they're not, they're not words that have any real meaning to the rest of the world, but you're in the privacy of your home, you're doing something and you're singing, making up something. Now, maybe a lot of you are like, what are you talking about? But some people understand that. Well, if there is these communications, Paul speaks to them. He brings them out here and he says they have to be understandable. That's the thing. That's the main point. Both to, if it's to a public group, it's to people who are there. And if it's privately, it should still be understandable. And he's going to make that clear in a second. So the first thing to consider with any communication in a tongue is it should be understandable. If it's babbling, it's no matter it's privately or publicly, it's not passing that test. So he says, if he brings himself and he says, if my spirit prays, so some have thought that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Some think that he's talking about his own spirit. Some think that he's talking about a spiritual gift here. Uh, it's probable that when he says spirit here, he's talking about when my mind, will, or emotion, suke, his soul, and soul and suke are often interchanged in scripture by the writers. So it's possible he's talking about his own mind, will, and emotion. And it's doubtful he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not saying blessed are the poor and the Holy Spirit. So I think we're talking about this spirit here. The question remaining is, can we pray in the spirit? And I'm going to step out personally into uh, an area I don't normally reveal about myself personally and take a leap of faith here that you can handle it because um, it's questionable to some people. It's something that's like, and they just don't want to believe that. And that's okay. It's okay. But can you pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul alludes to it, and I would suggest you can. In fact, this is where you want your prayers to come from. You want your prayers to come from the Holy Spirit. You want to utter what the Holy Spirit wants you to utter. You certainly don't want to utter what your flesh wants you to utter. If you do that, then all you're doing is, you know, wanting to be seen of men, so to speak, and wanting to impress men with the words you have to say. So to start off, you want your prayers to be guided by the Holy Spirit. So let's just talk about this for a minute. And this is as far as I go out on the experiential uh, realm of religion. It's an interesting subject. Again, whatever is happening, the individual is finding utterance in their prayer language where their mind and their heart and their emotions are engaged with the Holy Spirit and conveying that verbally. The second point, and, and charismatic people understand what I'm talking about in this. Uh, the second point we have to agree is, is that Paul says they have to be intelligible. Okay? So speaking, singing, uh, or praying in tongues, it has to edify either the prayer himself or herself or the group at large. So there are... Uh, other things to know here. The third thing is consider now is what does Paul mean when he says, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Giving an example. 
The implication is that if we are praying in an unknown tongue, just like if we were speaking the same, we must be able to interpret what the heck we are communicating out there and not just babbling for babbling's sake. So to bring it home, be wary of any practice, whether you do it privately or whether it's being done publicly, where babbling is taking place and you don't know what the heck it means and no one else around you knows what the heck it means. If you see that, you know, be very cautious about what's going on. Now, to the subject of praying in an unknown tongue, there are many Christians who understand the concept. I happen to be one of them. And, but it, I was not open to it at all. I'm shut down to stuff that's weird like this. But I had, I had someone explain it to me, actually sit down and walk me through what it's about. And I'm going to walk you through the same thing that they shared and then leave it in your hands. Okay? First of all, the Holy Spirit does, is a, a gentleman, a gentle being, a gentle woman, since it's always in the uh, feminine. The Holy Spirit does not take you over like a demon and cause you to suddenly utter things. It's a two-way street in our relationship with God on everything I believe. A two-way street. He calls, we respond and receive or not. All those things. He blesses, we choose to see him in it or not. There's a constant two-way street in things. So how does that apply to praying or speaking in tongues? Um, it was explained to me that when we think about something as human beings, um, we take the contents of our minds and our hearts and our emotions and we consider them and then we capture them and box them up into words. Okay, that's the way we do it in our flesh. So, oh man, I'm really worried about my son. He's got a habitual gambling addiction. Um, and I just hope, God, that you will help my son to help with his addiction. And dude, what? And, and you're just boxing everything up until your words and communicating it to God. So we take... When the spirit of the living God is, is working with you in your communications to God, we allow the spirit to work and articulate for us concepts that are broken down out of language that we, that we are speaking. I know it's getting wild. God knows and reads the contents of our heart. So he doesn't need our Japanese or our French or our English to get what is coming to him. This is how it was explained to me. And so he, he hears what a chirping bird means, or he hears what a roaring lion mean, means, and he hears what we mean, even when it's just to give him the contents of our heart through breaths or through groanings, as scripture calls it. So sit quietly, if you're willing, and open your heart to God. And Listen to the Spirit as the Spirit reveals the contents of your heart. Don't take and say, I got this on my list. Just relax and let the Spirit reveal the contents of your heart. And uh, when the Spirit touches you, you'll sense the inner workings and you exhale, so to speak, with the content the Spirit reveals. 
That, this is how it was taught to me, and this is what I did to test it. And, and then I discovered that it is a viable communication that you can have spiritually with God. So you exhale, God gives you a thought. You're worried about your son and his gambling. I've got so much to do today. You can hear yourself. You inhale. And you continue to let your thoughts be taken over of your heart and mind by the Spirit. And you might notice that instead of just thinking about your son and his gambling problem, your mind also goes to, and this happens, and it's very um, startling. You will also just, you're relaxing, you're thinking, you'll think, oh, my son's gambling. I got to go to the store. Um, I'm worried about my blood pressure. How do I get closer to you, God? Uh, my sister's angry with me. Uh, the, the country is in big trouble. Our president needs help. The roof is leaking. And all of a sudden, all this stuff, you didn't like sit down and try to gather up and articulate in boxes. You're relaxing and you just let the spirit work with you because God is in you. And when you have all those come to you, you exhale again. And that exhale, it's, it's the sound you are making of the content that the spirit brought to your heart. So the spirit is giving you all those things that are coming out of your mind and thoughts, and you are articulating them with a sound. And the reason that's important is because all things articulate meaning with sound, which Paul has clearly established already. What that sound is, is up to you. But the sound is important because it signifies to you that you've expressed it, but you're not doing it with words. You don't say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me that the roof's leaking, that we need to go to the president, and we need to... You're just... And it's taken care of by that. So you remove all human manipulation of the information and you just are simply sitting there with God and letting the Spirit tell you what to share from your heart. That sound that you make represents all of the stuff that has passed through your head. And as you exhale and inhale, you're releasing these thoughts by the Spirit of what it wants. And as you continue, it becomes really interesting because you're, you're pulling up things you did not know were part of your concerns or part of your worries or part of your joy and worship. You didn't know how grateful you were for these things or these realizations. You didn't know how, how heavy the subject of your daughter and her Angry outbursts are troubling you. You don't know. And that's why the scripture says that, he, that the spirit knows the, the contents of our heart, that we groan in the spirit is what it's talking about. So more and more thoughts, more air released. And before you know it, you will discover, if you want, that you are communicating with God without a language that you normally use. You're communicating from the heart by the spirit of things the spirit brings to your mind. It's amazing as the spirit reveals to you what is important in you. That's called praying in tongues. Now, many people don't believe it. Many people don't do it. People who believe it don't do it. It's a weird thing. But that's what Paul is talking about. And I think it's as viable of a personal spiritual experience that anyone can have. And it does help in your communications 
with God, but it's not for the group and it's not for any type of show. It is really you talking to your God. So the key is, according to Paul, is that whatever is uttered, it has to be understood. And that's the thing about this is when you are letting the Spirit move you in this way, you know exactly what the Spirit is bringing out of your heart and head and what you are giving to God uh, through those utterances. You know. And that's why he says, if I pray in tongues and I don't know what I'm saying, then it's completely worthless. He's not saying he does that. He's saying, he's alluding to the fact that when I pray, I know what the Spirit is moving me from, and therefore it is fruitful, you see. So at verse 15, Paul now says, what is it then? That's another way of saying, what will I do? And he concludes, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with understanding also. So there's the direction from the scripture, from my experience to you, if you want it or don't. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with understanding also. And said, I'm not just going to babble. I'm going to understand. I will sing with the Spirit, he says. And I will sing with understanding also. So he's emphasizing the import of understanding here in all these expressions. I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. So in terms of praying in the Spirit, Paul concludes that he will do it with understanding, with understanding not babbling for babbling's sake, but conscience, consciously knowing what is coming out of his mouth is representing things that are in his uh, heart, mind, will, emotions. But he adds that interesting line, I will sing with the Spirit. Now, if you've ever been moved by the Spirit, and you're articulating noises that aren't words, you might be humming, but it's a praise to God like the birds are singing to God. That is singing in the Spirit. I don't do that. I don't sing in the Spirit, but apparently that is something people can do too. And I would assume it works the very same way. And I would probably bet that we do more of that without even knowing that's what we're doing than people do praying in the tongues, that we are so full of him that our voice is letting out the contents of our heart. And people can probably understand that relationship better through song than you can, or humming. When we hum, we are, if your heart is full of joy for what's happening in your life with God and you're humming a tune, that is, that's sort of equivalent to the prayer, okay? It's sort of equivalent. So, uh, all we know is that if the humming in the spirit doesn't convey any message to the hummer or the singer, then it's not edifying. And Paul, so Paul says, I'm going to sing with understanding. All right. Verse 16, he says, else when, this is that line that was difficult in the King James, else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at the giving of thanks, seeing that he understands not what thou sayest. It's really easy to understand, actually. He's saying, or, if this is not done, that's what else means, or if this is not done, and expressions are unintelligible, how will a person who, and it's a colloquialism, how will a person who occupies the room of the unlearned, 
we might crassly say, how will an idiot, uh, uh, idiocy, mean, how will someone who's unlearned in the things that we're talking about? That, it's not a negative. It's just, how will the unlearned, and the way they would say it then was, how will someone who occupies the room of the unlearned say amen? When someone gives thanks, they wouldn't be able to. They can't say amen because they don't know what the heck was said. That's all he's saying. Someone who's not informed with what's going on and is sits in the room of the unlearned can't say amen to what's been said because they don't get it. So, in other words, if words are spoken, prayed, or sung to a person that is unlearned in that language or unfamiliar with that, they could never give their assent to say amen. When you guys say amen to the end of a prayer, you're saying, I agree, so be it, right? That's what we get from the Greeks, amen, so be it. If you don't agree with, with something that's said in a prayer, don't say amen. Do it backward, say nemena, that's a joke. So don't say amen if you don't agree with what's in a prayer because I mean, amen is your way of saying so be it, right? So, uh, if a person can't understand, they're not going to be able to say, so be it, and therefore they are not participating in the devotion, and therefore they're not being edified at all. That's his point. So at verse 17, he says, for thou verily givest thanks well, but the other's not edified. And we talked about that, how he admits this can be by the spirit that someone is speaking in tongues in a group, but they're doing it at the wrong place and wrong time if no one is being edified. So you're eloquently praising God. You're giving all sorts of great Slavic languages that no one understands. But if you can't edify the people there, they can't say amen. They are not part of the group and therefore they're not being edified. And at this point, Paul speaks favorably of tongues in his life. I would strongly suggest that this is for that time, for them then. Uh, but he says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. That sounds pretty boastful, doesn't it? Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. He lays it out really clearly there. Reading that first line, you might think that he's boast, boastful. I speak more tongues than all of you. You could read into that. Paul's not that way. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can take some of his lines written in text and you can think, this guy, he is really full of himself. But he could humbly say that. I really thank God that you know, I've been able to speak more tongues than most of you guys, because of what I do, you know, can be very humble. So I don't think he's being arrogant. We mentioned last week that this makes some real sense when we consider what he was called to do. He was called to share the gospel alone, let's just say in Corinth, where there are dozens and dozens of languages and dialects. Paul says, I thank God I speak more tongue tongues more than all of you. But in the church, it says here in the King James, and I just have to do a little segue here. I want to point out that the Greek term translated church in the King James is ecclesia. And ecclesia means the called out. That's what the church means. The called out. Interestingly, we think of church as those who have gone in. 
But that's not what the church is, where people have gone in. The church is the people who have been called out. Out from what? Out from the world. So just because you attend a church and you go into a building, that doesn't mean you're part of the called out. You see? That's part of the problem of going and collecting in buildings and thinking that is the church. What church do you go to? I don't go to a church. I'm part of the called out. That's what it literally means, ecclesia. But, you know, being human beings and always wanting to systematize stuff, we call the church these locations of everybody going in. But I, he says, in all the land where the called out are living, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding. So he seems to be saying that when the called out are there, present, anybody who is part of the body, the bride, the church, he would rather speak words that were understandable than 10,000 words that were not. Let's just take it to, to a hyper example. There are five people, three women, two men of the called out that have gathered at McDonald's by chance and they're sitting there and you walk in and everyone knows who you are. You grew up here in Layton. You've never left Layton and you suddenly are able to speak 10,000 words in Russian. Paul says it would be better if you walked into that McDonald's and you spoke five words that were understandable. You see the difference? See how, how big of an emphasis he's making on understandability? That's huge. I speak tongues more than all of you, but I would rather in the called out. It's such an indictment against what they're doing in these gatherings of buildings. So five words that were understandable to 10,000 that were not. Why? He tells us. Ready? That my, that, excuse me, that by my voice, I might teach others also. See, the one is to really uh, impress others, so, so to speak. It's to kind of blow you away. But there's no edification going on. He says that by my voice, I want the five words to teach, exhort, uh, edify, comfort. Those are the three things he gave us last week. The goal of addressing the called out is to instruct, teach, and edify. I'm going to repeat it. The goal among the called out is to instruct, teach, and edify. It is not to dazzle you. It's not to make us blown away. Remember last week I said, with miracles. It's not to go into a building and see people raised from the dead. That's even if, even if we had the whole, all the believers in the world going into a building and every week watching the dead raised. That's not what God, that's not how God has set it up for us. He says the called out need to be instructed, exhorted, edified, comforted by things we teach, which is why campus is so boring for people because we don't offer the stuff that excites in any way. We're here to edify and teach that by my voice, I might teach the daskalos, others. 
Verse 20, Paul summarizes everything at this point regarding tongues and says, Brethren, be not children in understanding. In other words, whatever is going on, make sure that there is understanding happening. Howbeit in malice be you children. In malice be children. But in understanding be men. So there seems to be a built-in accusation here of the believers at Corinth. Uh, children might have a tendency to take what is important or sacred and abuse it or mock it or do something with it that they don't really get. They're just children, right? So don't be children in understanding. Now, what's interesting about this is the word for children in the Greek is uh, paid on. And, uh, but that's not the word that Paul chooses to use here. He uses uh, napion or what's uh, napiazo. And napiazo means a baby. Napiazo. He doesn't use the word children. The King James puts children here. That's not what's used. So they've made a mistake there because paidon would be a child. He says, don't be an infant, right? So I make this distinction because Paul made the distinction when he wrote not to be infants. The King James takes it and says children. So this being said, it seems that Paul is not telling them don't be childish, but to grow up from acting like babies baby Christians, screaming, crying, whatever a baby is like in their lesser way, right? But he says, but, but in, in malice, be babies. Babies, I guess, don't have malice. Mm, I'm just going to get that baby next to me. <laughs> they're, they're not full of malice. They're full of self. So he says, be babies in malice. I mean, yeah, right. But don't be babies in this other way. So important. Even Jesus told his disciples that, um, that they must be as little children. But he uses paid on there, you know. And that means, you know, trusting. You know, when I deal with little children, I deal with my grandsons. They don't trust me so much anymore, but uh, really. But they were, they used to just be like, okay, all right. They just trust. So Jesus tells us to be like him in that way, you know. You know, looking up to Father, help me to be children in that way. So almost always an exception in Scripture when it comes to things. He says, Jesus says to be, you won't inherit the kingdom of God unless you're like children. But then we have Paul telling us uh, in other places, don't be children in, uh, but really what the word there is paid on. So uh, at this point, we're brought to some more passages, so I'm going to cover it before we wrap it up. Uh, verses 21 through 25, he goes on and he says something interesting. In the law, it is written, With men of other tongues and of other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, Paul, Paul continues, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not to them that believe not, but for them that believe. Verse 23, if therefore the whole ecclesia comes together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say they are mad? 
But if all prophesy teach, and we cleared that up last week, and there comes one in that believes not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all and he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. So go back to verse 21, where Paul now quotes the Old Testament out of the blue, where it's where and he says in the law, it is written and he quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. With men of other tongues, God says, and other lips will I speak unto this people. He's ticked when he says this. And yet for all that, and yet for all that, will they not hear me, says the Lord. So it's found in Isaiah 28. The word law doesn't mean the law of Moses, but it just means in the ancient scripture. And he quotes Isaiah and it means God in Isaiah says, you know what? These rebellious Jewish children of mine, I am going to try them by putting in their midst a people who speak a different language. And the, they're from the land of Chaldea in context. And that, that language is going to sound unintelligible and barbarous to these, these children of mine who are so rebellious. And unfortunately, here in Isaiah, God says, and yet, in fact, the fact that I even do that doesn't cause them to change. They remain rebellious children, okay? What's interesting about Paul's use of this passage first is that reference that Paul uses from Isaiah is not talking about speaking in tongues, but he's applying the principle to his conversation of speaking in tongues. And Paul and Peter and other apostles will do that. They will pull from the Old Testament and they'll use passages from the Old Testament completely out of context with what it was talking about in the Old Testament to justify their position in the new. That troubles some people. We want, we want everything to stand on all four legs, right? But they do that often. They'll pull from an Old Testament passage and scholars will say, this passage has nothing to do with how they're using it, but they'll use it to their advantage to make a point. That's what he's doing here. Uh, so Paul appeals to passages in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that have no connection to it. Uh, but we learn his use of this example, something really important in that, The importance of language in people relative to their unity and their ability to um, thrive. The importance of language. God to the children of Israel who were rebellious said, all right, I'm going to throw in some Chaldeans in your midst. Let's see how well you can get stuff done, right? And he says, and still, that didn't change you. But we see the importance of language and the unity of language here among the people of God. Okay, Of course, you know the Tower of Babel or Babel. I don't know which it is. People say it differently. But in that experience, God took a people and they said, there's nothing we can't do. We can do anything. Right? And so he comes down. He confounds their language. This is a pivotal moment in the Old Testament where God confounds the, the unifying language of the people in the Tower of Babel. And it makes us wonder about the ability for Christians to truly unify when we are all speaking different denominational languages. 
That's been something that has divided us since Sola Scriptura. That we now speak entirely different languages depending on where you're gathering, going into. And those things are almost Tower of Babel-like in what they have done for our unity as a people. Mormonism has their own set of language, you know. I mean, the old joke is when people hear you're going to meet at the stake center, they're looking for a sizzler, right? They don't get what that language is. And this is how groups distinguish themselves and then make themselves unique so as to have a proprietary ownership of all who follow them is by distinguishing the language. Brigham Young tried to come up with his own alphabet. Did you know that? He tried to create his own alphabet. It's that important to unifying people and keeping them separate from the rest of the world. So, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, having a Catholic priest to have breakfast with, the guy speaks in a language. When he goes into it, I have no idea what you're talking about. What, what does that even mean? Well, and then he has to go back and explain what's happened. Orthodoxy does it. Uh, and you can break it down into the lesser denominations within Christianity itself. Baptists have a language. Lutherans have a language. Pentecostals have a language. Orthodoxy has a language. Calvary chapels have a language. And we see that man has taken the simple language of the gospel, the, in, the intelligentsia, take it, and they run with it. I mean, they speak. When you talk to a theologian, oh, they love throwing their language out there. So people are just scratching their head, trying to want to belong to keep up with it being said. That is not what God established here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men have taken it and split it up. So the death knell at the Tower of, of Babel was their ability to communicate. And here in Isaiah, Paul mentions that this is what happened with the Jews. God threw the Chaldean language in among them as a punishment, as a punishment. The gift of tongues in Paul's day was a wonderful way for all those different cultures and people which needed to have the gospel taken out into their world, get out there in a reasonable, logical, understandable way. And so God gives them the good news and it is able to transcend through a thousand different dialects and languages and vocabularies, uh, which have all, uh, were all there to, uh, because they were distinguished from at the Tower of Babel. So now we have done that within the faith. So what the language of Christianity, what is the language of Christianity that ought to be used between us because we're so different culturally and we're so different in how we live and our denominations are so different it seems to me like there ought to be and so this is where creeds have come in we've tried to systematize everything down to a couple lines and then what everyone does is take the lines and then apply them do you believe in this do you believe in that oh you don't speak that language and so the, the nightmare continues on I would suggest, just casually, there's three words. Imagine that you're on a bus, you're whatever faith you are, a Catholic gets on. I suggest three words. A Mormon gets on, a Baptist. I suggest three words between you. It's like the greeting in the, uh, that show where they say, blessed be the fruit. Handmaid's Tale, sorry. 
there's a show called The Handmaid's Tale, and every time they see each other, they say, blessed be the fruit. And it's, it's just a language, and they're all unified in this thing. Again, the purpose, right? So what would be the three words I would suggest? Maybe you have three different words. I would suggest Jesus or Yeshua. I prefer Yeshua more and more as I go on. Jesus, okay? I would suggest faith, and I would suggest love. Faith, love, Jesus. You see a Catholic? Faith and love in Jesus. You see a Mormon? The Mormon says to you, faith and love in Jesus. That's all we do. Everywhere, Christians speak the simplest form, deconstructed, without all the implications. Now, this drives the people who like to divide it up and really systematize stuff nuts. But is it the right Jesus? Are they loving the right way? Is their faith appropriate to that name? Will it get them to heaven? All the stuff. Again, more language, right? Simplify it down. I, I would say it would be a wonderful thing. Just imagine if people who walked by faith in Jesus simply agreed that we believe Jesus, faith in Jesus, love through Jesus. That's it. Done. I think we would get rid, we would have the, we would have the tongues of the modern day that would unify all of us and keep us from the infighting. So not a church or denomination, not a sacrament or a communion or a Sunday or a sin or heaven or hell or good or evil, not politics, not judgment, not second coming, not baptism form, not speaking in tongues, not tithes, not what people can eat and drink, not what they can wear, not uh, special prayers, not authority, not trinity, not benity, not modalism, uh, no catechisms, no temple worthiness, all of that stuff doing this. Since Jesus came and he united us with I am. I mean, it's just remarkable. Jesus said it himself, let your words be few. Anything more of yes and no is evil. He made that clear, right? We have taken and we've given yes and no a thousand different interpretations. So... No debates. By taking this example from the Tanakh that God inserted the Chaldean language into the people illustrates the complexities that just one language introduced into a group of people can do. Just one. And we've introduced dozens into the body. At verse 22, Paul now says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign... Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Oh, if we could only just go into those gatherings of believers and share that one. But prophesying teaching serves not them that believe not, but is for them which believe. Did you catch a difference between those two instructions? The one says... Tongues are for a sign. And the second one to the believers is prophesying teaching serves not. 
them that believe not, but it serves those who believe. We have a sign on the one hand and we have serving on the other. Paul says, you want the signs for the unbelievers. You want the serving for the believers to summarize that down for you, right? So, uh, wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not them that believe not, but for them which believe. We're going to wrap today up by just jumping through this verse quickly. Paul makes it really clear. Tongues, and because he does not distinguish between foreign tongues, praying in tongues, singing in tongues, I'm going to suggest that any expression of tongues are, a, are for a sign to them that believe not. There's your context, and there's the order. First principle. Okay, you're a professing Christian and you are known in a town from your youth and you begin to speak a foreign language to a group of non-believers. That is a sign that all those non-believers will say, whoa, who are you? What's, where's this coming from, Sean? And that, by that, they might believe, okay, or at least pursue belief. Conversely, you're sitting in a gathering of believers. Someone stands up and says in Swahili to the rest of the group or prays and sings in Swahili and nobody can interpret what it said. It's fruitless because tongues are a sign not to them that believe. Okay, what more do we need? Then in terms of comparison, Paul says, but prophesying, again clarified, serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. One's a sign One's a service. Signs are for non-believers. Service is assigned to believers. Um, interestingly enough, and we're almost done, Paul will admit that tongues in church are a waste. He really has said that over and over again, if you guys are bored by it now, uh, unless they can be interpreted properly. But that prophetic teachings may not be lost on unbelievers. Okay. So he said, listen, the unknown tongue thing, forget it. It's not going to do anything to edify. But prophetic teachings might actually serve those who don't believe yet. And he says this, verse 23, 24, and 25. If therefore the whole ecclesia comes together into one place, showing that the church is not a thing that comes together into one place. He says, if the called out come together uh, into one place. You get it? Oh, it's so beautiful if you read the word. He tell, he's instructing us right there that it's not a gathering of people. If, therefore, the whole ecclesia be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say, you guys are all crazy? They will. Okay? Verse 24, but... If all prophesy in that church, all are speaking edifying language, encouraging language, comforting language, speaking the truth uh, with God and wisdom, and there come one that believes not or is one unlearned, and he is convinced of everything people say, he is judged of all, is how Paul puts it in the King James, meaning the convincing word spoken in an understandable language will serve to convict him or her of their sin, of their walk, of their absence of God in their life. And Paul adds, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest by the speaking of truth. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. 
We don't have tongues here, but after or before we're all talking, we have the Q&A and we've been talking about faith and grace and I make a presentation and you guys add to it. And there's someone who's not a believer sitting there in the back and the spirit touches their heart. Paul is saying that is of benefit and they will come forward the secrets of their heart made known. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus who did it for us. Oh God, I've been a sinner. Oh, forgive me. And he'll fall flat on his face and then leave here and go out and tell the truth is taught at that place where the, where the believers gather. That's his point there in verse 25. So all as a result of sound instruction, not tongues is his point thus far. In other words, being convinced of the truth, they will go out and report that the truth is found among the believers at Corinth because that's who this letter is written to. And that's how we would read that. Okay, Q&A or comments from anybody. Anything? All right. Hi, I'm, I'm David. And I just wanted to say I thought it was significant that uh, today, speaking of a voice, you were a voice without video. Oh, yeah, look at that. Cool. So I hope everybody heard your voice. Oh, thanks, brother. That's a great idea. Great thought. Is that it? This is Danny. I was just reflecting back when I was um, active mem member of another church that uh, we were taught to pray in a certain manner. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I always followed that, and we were taught to pray out loud. And so um, I developed a certain ability to do that uh, in my own personal life. But as I started to come to Christ, and uh, my eyes were starting to open up, <coughs> and I had this the beginnings of this relationship with Jesus, I just called him Jesus. I remember one time, I was at the end of my activity in that church. I was called to give a closing prayer in a state conference. And when I was finishing up, I just said, in Jesus' name, amen. And I don't know why, but it shocked myself a little bit. And I don't know if anybody caught it, but I thought I didn't, I didn't follow the formal ending of the prayer. Yeah. But it didn't matter to me because I knew it was truly from my heart. Yeah. And uh, ever since then and on my journey for the last few years, I find it difficult to pray out loud, mm. and I don't do it as much anymore. Well, for one thing, I don't have an opportunity to be in a social gathering or a church gathering to do that, but I find that my communication is through the Spirit mm. all the time, mm. and uh, just being able to talk out loud to Him. And the other thing that it helped was that um, I don't picture Him as a human, as a man. Mm you know as a with a body anymore it's god the almighty the powerful one and uh, so it's helped me but it takes it's hard when you're in a, a religion that that has a construct of what he is supposed to look like who he is how you address him all that sort of thing really hard the other thing i was going to mention is that wasn't acts 2 where the pentecost wasn't that a perfect example of where the spirit taught the the unbelievers yeah and uh Perfect. Yeah, perfect example. 
Yeah, I find it funny, uh, Dan. I don't know if you. If this is what you're saying. I think it is, but people, I people say, do you pray? I, I I don't pray anymore. I just communicate with God through my life. So that. And, and, and do you ever get with people who are of the trained, regimented, systematic, and when you, you say, well, you offer the prayer, or they say, oh, I want to pray, and then they offer it in that way, you just feel bad for them. You're just like, oh, this is so, you know, bless the food and keep us safe from harm or accident and, and all that. It's like, come on, man, talk to him, right? That's beautiful, Danny. Is that it? All right, let's uh, pray vocally and get out of here. Lord, we uh, gather as those who have been called out into this little room and, and we seek you and want to have a working, walking, talking, conversant relationship with you at all times. And as Danny pointed out, not, not roped in to these, these rules and boxes, even in boxes of words, but just through our internal relationship where we have constant communication and we pray that you will fortify us by your spirit in that way and we'll be able to speak with you um, as a man speaketh with a friend face to face or a woman and and so we just pray for this lord and we we ask that you be with us now as we exit from here and we go out into the world and we ask that you will uh, help us and assist us with the challenges that are before us in this flesh whatever they might be. We pray for those who are uh, struggling mightily with great difficulties uh, on down to small difficulties. And we pray that you will make yourself known, that we will see your hand, we'll see your handiwork in the creation, we'll see your support, we'll, and we'll have that faith and that hope and that love. We pray that we can assist in breaking down the walls of miscommunication and just speak the, the truth and peace and comfort to those who are in need of it. And use us as you would to reach people who don't know you and to do what you want to do with our lives now that we are yours by the Spirit. So we pray for those. I don't have the list in front of me, but by memory, I pray for my sister Lisa who is here, continued healing and her overcoming the obstacles that she is facing in her life, which are immense on a worldly scale. We pray for Liz and the healing of her body. And uh, we pray for Diana, that she will have more and more friends in the place where she's at. We miss her physical presence, but know she's there. We pray for Barbara, who's left us and moved away after losing Scotty. And uh, we pray for uh, anyone else whose uh, names haven't come to my mind. You know who they are. We lift our hearts up to you for them now and hereafter. In Jesus' name, amen. Take bagels. Oh, Jesus. Jesus.